Exodus chapter 12 this morning as we begin our time in the Word. So Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that your Word is written and it's been bound for us and it's been given to us for our instruction, for our correction, um, for us to see you for who you are. And Father, it's meant to build us up. And so this morning I'm asking expectantly to see how you're going to use your word to instruct us and prepare us for this week. So we come to you by faith. We come to you because of the grace that you poured out in your son. And we come to you because you're our father. So Lord, instruct us in the way that you would have us go this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Exodus chapter 12, so far, as of last week, we saw um, Moses, uh, by the hand of God, explain what was getting ready to happen, uh, what was going to happen to uh, Pharaoh, what was going to happen to Egypt, uh, what was going to happen for the Israelites, and how they could be involved in the process of being brought out of the land of Egypt. And so with that being the case, we found ourselves right at the point where God was getting ready to unleash his plague, his final plague, which is the death of the firstborn son in every household in Egypt. And so uh, a somber event, uh, but we ended last week kind of on a pregnant pause where it's like, okay, it's getting ready to happen and we'll see you next week to be continued. And so uh, with this week, we begin in verse 29 where it says that it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. So this, this is no respecter of persons. Uh, this doesn't matter about your uh, financial status or your, whether you're a government official or if you're a lowly slave. All it means is that every person was subject to this plague, but he gave instructions last time on how to uh, not avoid the plague, but to be saved through the plague. And that's the reality. The Israelites had to live through the plague, and they, they weren't just taken out of it and avoiding it entirely. They had to listen to, uh, it says, uh, verse 30, that Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. So the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's servants, and then all the Egyptians rose at night and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So everyone lost a loved one that night. So verse 31 continues and says, he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise, Go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. So finally, the Pharaoh is giving them not only permission, but he's saying, get out. I don't want you here anymore. Uh, it's causing only problems. And so if you remember, multiple times throughout all the plagues that God revealed to Egypt, every time he would kind of come along and say, well, okay, now I'll let you go if you make this thing stop. But then God would make the thing stop, and then they would, of course, the Pharaoh would harden his heart and say, never mind. He got his immediate need met, then he said, I'm going to delay. And over and over, we saw them not fulfilling their promises. This Pharaoh would not fulfill his promise to let them go and worship. 
And so by the end of it, the reason that it's ramped up as far as it has to the death of their firstborn is because over and over, they didn't think that God meant business. And so as he is showing over and over again that he does mean business, verse 31 tells us that uh, the Pharaoh now calls for Moses and says, rise, get out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Take everybody with you and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me. So even though he's sending them out, it's interesting that people that don't even trust God will still say, I, I, would, I, like, I would like to be blessed. I'd like to be prayed for. And so here we have the Pharaoh saying, as you're leaving, bless me also. Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So even the Egyptian citizens are saying, get them out. We have hardly anything left. If they continue to stay here, they didn't understand that this was the death of the firstborn. They thought if they stayed here any longer, we're all going to die. We've lost all our stuff, and, and now we're losing children. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out. So verse 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. So if you remember, part of the Passover feast wasn't just killing the lamb. It wasn't just spending time with the lamb. It wasn't just putting the blood on the doorpost. But when you eat it, you need to eat it with readiness. You need to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. They were to eat it while they were dressed which is interesting because he's calling them to be saved through the plague, but also be ready to go. So as believers, as Christians, we need to not just trust in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, but we need to live as though we are ready to go home, not to be comfortable here, ready to, to, to go at a moment's notice at the Lord's leading in a practical everyday stuff, but also ready to go home to be with the Father at any moment. And with that being the case, they were ready. It says that the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And then they asked of their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, for articles of silver, gold, and clothing. So he says, be ready for the journey. And then also ask your neighbors for provisions. So they're going to leave out of Egypt with money and with clothes for the journey. And he's going to use the very people that enslaved them to provide for them. But then it says, <clears throat> verse 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them exactly what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They were willingly plundered. But uh, the Lord is the one that gave them favor with these people. Verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth and 600,000 men on foot besides children. And so a conservative estimate would say that these were the men and women, 600,000, and their children. And if they have an average of two kids even, you're looking at 1,800,000, 1 1.8 And so uh, I had to do a little estimate. You know, I had to move the decimal, carry the one, and then get confused, and then think about squirrels. And But all that said, we, we have this here where... They're giving, so this is a historical record. 
historical records give specific words, like, you know, they left from this place to go to this place. So we have the geography, then we have specific numbers, and, and you might think, well, it said 600,000 men and their children, it didn't have specific numbers, but that's how the Bible shows us numbers. If you look at the feeding of the 5,000 in the New Testament, it says that there were 5,000 men and their families. And so it's, it's not an estimate, this is how they would give you numbers. And so verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed. Verse 38, it says, a mixed multitude went up with them also flocks and herds, and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Well, they had no leaven in it because they were instructed not to put leaven, but also because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. Leaven takes time to break down and cause gas and then rise the dough. And and the Lord knew ahead of time they wouldn't have time for that. He said, be dressed and prepare your food like you have to prepare it now, quickly. So they baked unleavened bread cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Well, we already know that the provisions were prepared for the Israelites, but the mixed multitude had not prepared. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations." And so verse 38 says that there was this mixed multitude that left with them, which is interesting because it seems to me, based on this reading of the text, that it wasn't just the Israelites that were brought out of the land, but there was a mixed multitude of people from Egypt. So perhaps some of them saw these plagues, they saw the power of the God of Israel, and they said, well, their God's stronger than ours, let's go with him instead of staying here with ours. Our our gods didn't deliver us, and so let's go out with them. Well, the problem with that is really just one small problem, is that many of them, having seen the miraculous works of God, were following the God of Israel because of the miracles, right? Miracles cannot save. Miracles can show you the power of God. They can confirm what God has said, but miracles oftentimes are, are really just something that we follow after. We follow miracles. Uh, and if somebody came into our town and raised somebody out of a grave or healed them of some sort of illness miraculously, we would be tempted to follow them. But the reality is, as believers, we're not to follow miracles. Miracles are actually to follow us. Uh, there, Mark chapter 16 actually said that those who believe in me when they follow me, after them will be signs and wonders. They'll be bitten by serpents and they won't die. You know, it will be a result of following Jesus. We shouldn't follow Jesus because of the miracles. And I say that because in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, we actually see this group that followed them out of Egypt, still with them, 
And as they're wandering in the wilderness and they're not to their final destination yet, hardship has come upon them. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. And Numbers chapter 11 verse 4 says, the mixed multitude who were among the Israelites yielded to intense cravings. And it says here, the children of Israel, because of this, also started to cry out to the Lord and said, who will give us meat to eat? Uh, They don't just want what God provides, they want the best. And so they're asking for meat. And verse 5 says, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. They're complaining, right? And then it says, "There's this is their complaint. There's nothing at all except manna. There, there's just manna. It's terrible. Who wants to eat manna all the time? Which was their word, manna, meant in the Hebrew, what is it? And in the meantime, what it was, was it was bread that showed up on the ground in the dew every morning. They didn't have to plant. All they had to do was walk out of their dwelling, gather up the manna, and cook it. That's it. No planting, uh, no dealing with weeds, uh, no trying to come up with seed to plant. It just showed up miraculously. And yet their complaint is, it's all we got. Paul wrote to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And what's interesting is because they complained against the provision of the Lord, they were in the middle of getting judged. And yet what they remembered about Egypt was this. Remember the fish we used to eat and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? By the way, the things they remembered, the best stuff of Egypt, all created heartburn and indigestion. That's what they were crying out for. Oh, I wish I could have the garlic. I wish I could have the onions. Uh, by the way, those aren't even staples that we enjoy. Uh, but they were crying out for what they, they only remembered the good stuff. They remembered that the Nile River provided plenty of fish. And yet God was providing miraculously for them. So why did they cry out? Well, they were complainers in their own merit. But also there was a mixed multitude of people that were not really committed to following the Lord or surrendered to the Lordship of God, but they just saw miracles and wanted to go along for the ride. But when the miracles dried up, they started to even despise the practical miracles because the miracles weren't drying up. They just weren't as cool. Oh, just bread every day. You know how many people around the world, if God dropped a loaf of whole grain bread in their lap every morning, they would just jump up for joy do you think that we would? Or do you think we would be like, well, where's the steak? I mean, we would, right? That's, let's be real about ourselves. And yet God was providing miraculously for them and they couldn't even be thankful. And the mixed multitude added to that because they had cravings, they had lusts, they had desires. The Lord himself was not enough for them anymore. And for some of them, the Lord was never enough for them. There's always a mixed multitude, even in the church. And these mixed multitude will join in when God is genuinely doing miraculous things. But that just because they're coming to church, just because they're following godly people, 
doesn't mean that they have truly surrendered to following the Lord. And what's interesting about that is in John chapter 6, which was a passage we read last week, Jesus had just said a very difficult thing to his followers. People that were following, there was a mixed multitude. By the way, inside of that mixed multitude, the apostles, the twelve. But there was also a group of people that were following because every time they stopped, he'd feed them miraculously, or he'd heal somebody. And what's interesting is when he started to teach the hard stuff that got past the surface level, it says there in John, in chapter 6, I'm going to turn there, John chapter 6, it's a long chapter, John was kind of windy, John chapter 6, in verse 60 it says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, Of course, he had said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no part in me. And of course, they were like, well, this got creepy quick. And so they said, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? By the words, by the way, sometimes the word of God will offend you. Doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's hard to swallow. And what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So it might be offensive, but it doesn't mean that it's not life-giving. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So he's talking about those who are getting ready to depart, but also he's talking about Judas, who's going to physically betray him and sell him over to sinners to kill him. Verse 65, he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And notice this, verse 66, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They said, I can't do it anymore. They They left. Because what they believed about him and the reason they started following him was no longer fitting to their, what their liking was. So then Jesus said to the twelve also, he said to them, do you also want to leave me? Are you done? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't always understand it, but we're sticking with you what they're saying. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them and said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He's talking about Judas. And so there was a mixed multitude with Moses, and yet some of them are going, they're, they're proving that they actually don't trust God. They're just following him for what they thought that he, they could get. And many times we do this. We, we worship what God provides instead of worshiping God, the provider. We worship what God creates instead of the creator. We, we get it backwards. And yet the Lord, um, he turns up the heat just enough to let us know, hey, you're not actually following me. You're just following what I have to give you. So verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord 
went out from the land of Egypt. And this is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout all their generations. And so it came to pass, we see that they were in Egypt for over 400 years and, and the Egyptians made them their slaves. Did that mean that God was done with them? Did that mean that God wasn't able to deliver them? No, what it meant was they had to wait. Our favorite thing. God, when will you save us? Wait. But this is all a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 through 14, where God had said, you're going to dwell. Abraham, your descendants that you don't have yet are going to dwell in a, a place that they are foreigners to. They're strangers. But after 400 years, I will go down and I will deliver them. And not only will I deliver them, but they will plunder the people that enslave them. Uh, This seems impossible to us if we were them, but when God fulfilled it, they have something to celebrate for many generations in verse 42. So as uh, as we're lining this out, verse 43 through 51 starts to give us some more specifics about Passover. We've seen them practice the first Passover, and now God's going to give them some more specific revelation about how it is to be practiced. Verse 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. So there could be people in your home that you own, that your master's over, but just because they live in your house doesn't mean they can eat this Passover meal. Verse 45, a sojourner, in other words, a temporary citizen, or a hired servant shall also not eat of it. And so the ordinance, an ordinance just means something that's prescribed, an enactment or a statute. Um, verse 43 through 45, he says, the people that are to eat of it are only those who are of Israelite descent, those who are circumcised, he says. Now, if someone lives in your house and they want to partake of the Passover, then they have to be circumcised. This was a sign of the covenant of Abraham's people. And what's interesting about this is it seems very narrow. Only certain people can benefit from the Passover lamb what's the deal with that? Well, people didn't like that when Jesus said that about himself. (laughs) He said, no one may come to the Father except they come through a specific narrow way. They must come through me. There are many paths that lead to destruction, he said, but there's only one that leads to life. And there are many ways, many religious traditions. There's many books. There's many Uh, religions that that say that if you do these things, then you can go to heaven. But Jesus never said that. What he said was, I am the way, singular. I am the truth, singular, the only truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, the only way. So in the Old Testament, we get a type of that where he says, the only way to partake of Passover is, is to go through these rituals. And these rituals, by the way, point to Jesus Christ. They're not coincidences. 
But verse 46, he says, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of your house. Nor shall you break the lamb's bones, not one of them. Well, why is this necessary? He doesn't say. He just says, don't break any of the bones. So the the Passover lamb was to be killed and then eaten, but none of the bones could be broken. But if you look at John in chapter 19, we see the why behind the what. John chapter 19 in verse 31 says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, this is after Jesus cried out on the cross and says, it is finished. He's just died on the crucifix. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high holy day. And the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so what would happen is if they were going to execute someone before a holy day, the Jews were fine with that as long as they didn't leave their bodies up there during the holy day. And so in order to expedite the process of the death of the criminal, they would go up there and they would break their legs. And you might say, why would that kill them any faster? That just seems more excruciating. Well, crucifixion, the death that you would experience through crucifixion was because you bled out part of it and you would be weakened, but also it would suffocate you. The main purpose of crucifixion was the suffocation. So if you were Jesus and you were on the cross and there were nails in your hands and in your feet and you're just hanging there, you can't breathe on top of the pain on top of the nerves being busted, on top of the bones. Everything going on is painful, don't get me wrong. But the part that's the worst is that you can't get oxygen to your body unless you would push up on the nail with your nailed down feet. You'd lift your body so that you could suck in more air. But then when you'd hang low and you could exhale, you couldn't inhale again. So you'd again have to push up on the nail. So to speed up the death process, because that could go on for days, and many times it would go on for days, in order to speed up the process, they would break the legs so you could not lift up your body and get a gasp of air. But before they could do that to Jesus, it says in verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They didn't need to. It wasn't necessary. So what's interesting about that is that Jesus fulfilled prophecy while dying. And everybody says that, well, of course, anybody could go fulfill prophecy if they read about it ahead of time. I don't think that this one would be possible because for lots of reasons. But verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear He was going to make sure he was dead. And immediately blood and water came out, which was something that would happen after death. Your body constantly keeps those things separated while it's alive, but he had been dead long enough to where those things were mixing together. Verse 35, and he who has seen and testified, his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so so that you may believe. Who's testifying of this? This is kind of a parenthetical statement. John was standing there when it took place. 
He watched it. Front row seat. Verse 36. So then John makes application. John's writing his gospel after the other gospel writers. So he has time to think about these things. And he makes application. For these things were done so that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And he's quoting Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. So if you've ever had the question, what gives you the right to apply these Old Testament passages to the life of Jesus and say, well, he fulfilled these? Well, the apostles were reading the script. They didn't have the New Testament. (laughs) They had the Old Testament. But Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you boast and you lie against the truth. He says, you read the scriptures and you, think you, you partake in them because you think in them you will find life. But he said, these scriptures are written about me. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. So if you're ever reading Leviticus, it's, a, it's just a page turner. It's just why, and you, and you find yourself saying, why in the world is this in the scripture? Well, it's all pointing us to Jesus. The question is, how does this point us to Jesus? So in this morning's passage, it points us to Jesus in something as simple as the bones not being broken. And John, who saw the Passover lamb destroyed and killed and brutally murdered for our sin and knew that's what it was, in hindsight, he's like, wow, his, his bones weren't broken. Just like in Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. Wow. And so if someone wanted to eat of the Passover feast and to partake in it as a native Jew, they had to do three things. And this is according to, to tradition. They had to be baptized, which is interesting because John the Baptist showed up and he was baptizing but they had been baptizing for so long. So when he baptized, it wasn't just a mikvah, which was one of those big baths. It was actually a baptism in the river. And he said, this is a baptism of repentance. And even when the scribes and the Pharisees showed up, he said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? They came to see what was going on. Why is John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness? He wasn't following their rules. So they had to be baptized, and this was a sign of repentance, and then they had to be circumcised, which in the New Testament is a picture of receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, but circumcision in the Old Testament testified that it was an outward sign, it was a seal that you were in fact willing to partake in this in order to show that you were one of the Israelites, you were one of God's people, a descendant of Abraham you were able to then partake in Passover. So this was one instruction for the Jew and one instruction for the Gentile alike. Verse 49, it says, One instruction, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass that on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And so all these are foreshadows and types of what God would do uh, in the gospel. So I'm going to turn to Ephesians in chapter 2. We're going to see some of these same words that we just read in Exodus. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8, Paul famously writes 
an often quoted verse where he says, the grace, by the grace of God, you have been saved through faith. And that it's not of yourselves, it's not your works that saves you, but it's the gift of God, not of works, lest some of you should boast. For we are his workmanship, we're his masterpiece, we're his poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, therefore, so I read the verses we always memorize, but in verse 11, he says, therefore, remember, which is all these feasts and all these memorial dinners that they would do. It was to remember back. He says, remember that you, church, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, when you were Gentiles in the flesh, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. You had no hope. You did not have a relationship with God like the Israelites did. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to go worship in the temple, there were certain places you were not allowed because you were not a Jew. But now because of what Christ has done, not only has the court of the Gentiles been opened up and now you can go into the Holy of Holies, but now the the veil was torn inside the temple so that even... Only the priest could go in. Jews couldn't go in the Holy of Holies. But now all mankind is allowed in. The middle wall of separation has been removed, abolished in Jesus' flesh. The enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. So these ordinances said you couldn't take Passover until you do X, Y, and Z. But through Jesus, the law has been fulfilled so that we can now... He's created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity that was between Jew and Gentile. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And so, All of this to say that we all have the same rights in Christ. Now, chapter 13. So then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, the firstborn are mine. And so in the context, back where we were, they've just been delivered by a plague that killed what? The firstborn of mankind and the firstborn of their beasts or their animals. And so all the firstborn that have come in and have been delivered through the plague by the blood on the doorposts and on the lentils, they're brought out of Egypt. And now he says, now that I've saved your firstborn and not the others, I want you to give me your firstborn 
consecrate them just means to set them apart and give them to me. Dedicate your firstborn to me of man and of beast. And what's interesting about this is that all the way up until the day of Jesus, they were still doing this. They would bring the firstborn, which we'll see in verse 11 through 16. Let's read it. He says, It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, again, when, not if. He hasn't done it yet in this passage, but he will do it, and he's he's making a promise. When I deliver you, as I swore I would do so, and when he gives this land to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, and the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You're supposed to completely give your firstborn to the Lord. And if you will redeem it, then redeem it with a lamb. Redeem means to buy it back. So here's my son, here's my animal, and if you wanted to keep it, then you had to pay a price to buy it back. And when you pay that price, you get to keep it, but you get to lose whatever you sacrifice in its place. And if you will not redeem it, then you need to kill it, break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the commandment is not, by the way, to break the neck of your firstborn, your child. He says, you shall redeem them all. This is what was taking place, by the way, when Jesus was so old, he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, and then he was taken to the temple, and he was dedicated to the Lord. And by dedicating, he would actually be giving an offering in his place. An animal would die in his place to redeem him. And since they were poor, they would give to turtle doves. This is a passage that's more familiar that we read during the Christmas time. So it shall be, verse 14, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Why are we doing this? That you shall say to him, it is by strength of hand that the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, here's the why behind what we're doing. I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So all of these sacrifices, all of these feasts, all these memorials are meant to always point them back. Remember how you became a nation. And when you remember how you became a nation, what they didn't know is many of these signs, many of these feasts were actually pointing them forward to when they could stop doing the signs. They could stop doing the feast that Jesus would be their Passover lamb. They would no longer have to redeem their firstborn, but their firstborn would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so, every time that someone's added to the kingdom, we get to remember as Christians that we were redeemed with God's firstborn. Israel's firstborn was killed 
in order for a nation to be born. But our freedom costs God's firstborn. John 3.16 tells us about redemption. God so loved the world that he gave his firstborn so that we could live. And that's a powerful truth. And actually, in Colossians, um, we get a little bit more about this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood. There's that word redemption again. For the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. There's that word again over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things in him, all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So not only is he God's firstborn, that was given for our redemption, but then he becomes the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so, chapter 13, verse 3. So Moses said to the people, as they are leaving, Remember this day. You ever have one of those days where it's like, this is a day I need to write down. This is something I need to commemorate. This is something that we need to celebrate next year. He says, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This is the way you're going to commemorate it. Don't eat any leavened bread. Why? Because you couldn't have any. Remember that. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib, which is what we called last week the month of Nisan. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you. Get the leaven out. Later, Jesus would say, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the disciples looked around, they're like, oh, we forgot to get bread. That's what they said. Jesus said, beware of the leaven. He was talking about sin. He was talking about unrighteous ways of, you know, trying to interpret the rules of God. And they being much like me, 
heard what he said and did not understand it and answered anyway and said, oh, we forgot to get bread at the store before we went on our journey. And yet he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, their sin. But here he's saying, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because, again, the reason behind the what. This is done because of what the Lord did for me. If you're a person that underlines things in your Bible, I would underline this phrase. God is no doubt in this passage saving a nation and delivering them from their enemies. But when they celebrated it, God said this, tell your sons that you practice the feast of unleavened bread in order to remember what the Lord did for me. Not just your household, not just your family, but this is what God did for me. And I would ask you this morning, when you celebrate communion, do you think about it like that? I'm doing this to remember what God did for me. God did, in fact, die for the entire world. Anybody who will receive him will have eternal life. But when we celebrate communion, think about it on a personal level. God did this for me. Tell you what, it will make your heart explode with gratitude. He says, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. This is to celebrate my personal deliverance. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes and the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now they took this and made a commandment of their own. They put this as a sign on their heads and a sign on their arms. And if you go to Israel today, there are men there that have hats and they have these ceremonial phylacteries. And they, they have, they're literally wooden boxes with scrolls with tiny writing on them. And they put these little scriptures in there because they want to have the, the word of God before their eyes. They, they tie it around their head and they practice this. And they walk around town and they have the word of God literally on their physical body. But what God was saying when he said, I want this to be before your eyes, he wasn't saying, I want you to literally physically put it on your body and carry it around with you everywhere. He says, I, I want it to be inside your brain. I want it, it to be between your eyes. That's where you read. I want you to receive it. Take it into yourself. And then he says there, I want it to be between your eyes and I want the Lord's law to be in your mouth, to read it, to eat it. And then when we eat it, what comes out? You burp a little bit, you eat the word of God. It, even if you have a bad day and you get a little indigestion, you're spitting it up a little bit, out comes the words of life. That's much better than whatever else you might burp up. You know, like when we eat of the things of the world, what comes back out of us is the things of the world. And then we go, I don't know where that came from. Well, that's part of your diet. That's where it came from. But when you're eating the word of God and then you profess the word of God and you share it with other people, you're going to share with them words that lead to everlasting life, the best potential that anybody can have. And so keep this ordinance in its season from, your, from year to year. So this is the last set of scripture and we'll close out. 
Verse 17, then it came to pass. So God has set up reminders for them, ordinances, feasts. He's even really, whether they realize it or not, pointing them to the Messiah who's going to come and what he's going to be like and how he's going to fulfill the Passover lamb feast. He's going to fulfill the bread of unle- the unleavened bread feast. But then he doesn't just leave them with a future hope. He, he gives them future hope, but he doesn't leave them there. He says, but now I'm going to take care of your current circumstances because though they've been delivered, they've been delivered out of Egypt into the desert of Sinai, which is a desolate place. So when it, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was the quickest route. For God said, and he had a reason for it, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Moses writes down for us what happened, that God did not lead them the quickest way to where they thought they needed to be. God says, I'm going to take you to this land that I promised you, but I'm not going to take you the quickest way, and here's why. I'm afraid that when you see the Philistines and they try to war against you, you'll be too close to Egypt and you'll have an easy out. You won't stay with me. He's being their shepherd. He knows that they're prone to wander. He knows that that if they see the slightest bit at this moment, they're not ready for it. Adversity is, they can't take it yet. And so as a wise, good shepherd, he says, let's go the scenic route. And he takes them instead, it says in verse 18, so God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Have you ever felt like God's taken you the scenic route and you don't want it? You want the quick, easy fix? You want to be to the next season of life? You want to be past this bump in the road? Just, just take me to my end result. That's where I want to go. And the Lord's like, you're not ready. Because God's not just about getting there. He's about making you more like himself as you go there. He's, he's creating character in you. Romans chapter 5 says that patience produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character develops hope. But it's hope not in the things that this world has to give. It's hope in something that can't be taken away. So if you feel like God's put the brakes on and he's put the cruise control maybe on like five miles an hour and you want to go 50, consider the fact that you might actually be despising the manna. You might actually be despising his good shepherding over you where he's trying to protect you from something that you are not ready to be protected against in your own strength. He's saying, he's not saying yes. He's not saying no. He's saying wait. So as he's taking them, he says, let's go the long way. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. They're still leaving Egypt, mind you. They're just going to have to go through pastures and water. And then when he takes them through the pasture and the water, he's going to prove to them who they really are. By the way, trials do that. They don't prove to God anything. He already knows our hearts. He's actually using trials to prove to us who we really are so that he can strip away the fleshly things and build up and strengthen the things that will remain for eternity. So verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, 
for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took Joseph with them. Interesting, Jacob was buried immediately when he died while he was in Egypt. But Joseph said, I want to stay here with you guys until God delivers you. He was even there as a memorial saying, hey, God's going to take you out. I trust that. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. So he's given them provisions, money and clothes, but he doesn't leave them with that. He leads them, but he goes with them. And he did not take away his presence, you might say, the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night with, from before the people. So he says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to be what you need. Now, have you ever been to the desert before? I have just a little bit just enough to know that it's hot. Some of you, maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't, but deserts are hot. But what about the nighttime? They're extremely cold. So if that's the, now that's not all deserts, but this particular desert, it would be cold at night. And so the Lord says, I'm going to be with you, but I'm also going to appear to you as a pillar of cloud by day to lead you for shade, because it was hot out. Shade in the desert makes a big difference. But then he says, I'm going to be a pillar of fire by night. Now, light at night is good to help us go, but what else is it good for? Heat. So he says, I'm going to be everything that you need. Later, they'll find out he's going to be their bread. (laughs) Later, they'll find out that when they can't find water, he's going to be the rock that they talk to or get smited, and then the water pours out. Everything that they need is found in God. God provides them with everything they need. So what I have here for you is the Lord guides them in ways that they need, and he is with them as they follow him. And I love this because God has not only said that he is the only way to the Father, but he says, I'm the way. He's the leader. And Proverbs chapter 3 says, and I'm going to turn there because I misquote it often, We do that with our favorite verses, right? We start to rewrite them, and before you know it, they don't mean anything. Kind of like feasts, kind of like traditions. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't be a mixed multitude. Don't lean on your own understanding. Maybe we'd be tempted to take the quick way rather than the the way that's safe. In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he shall direct your paths. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for how many times in scripture you reveal yourself as the good shepherd. And as sheep, we confess to you that many times we think we know better and we have no idea. We're vulnerable. We can't defend ourselves. We're stupid. We look for greener pastures than what you've provided. And we do it over and over and over. So, Father, forgive us. Help us to see the things that you've been trying to show us for decades that we've been too daft to listen to. 
and help us to take heed to the words that you're now speaking to us and give us understanding so that we will not be the sheep that goes astray, but will know the voice of our master and follow him wholeheartedly. Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you know us better than we do. Help us to trust that in the daily. Maybe there's some here today who feel like you need to speed up the process, and yet what they need is to trust you. Give them the faith to do so. Help them to see that in the past you were faithful, and and today you're going to be faithful as well, just like you were in the past. Maybe there's some here today that feel like they've messed up the will of God and gotten outside of your will. Lord, help them to repent and come back to the side of the shepherd. But Father, we love you and we are grateful for your provision. Help us to be thankful for the daily bread and to be thankful when we get steak, but when we don't get steak, help us to be thankful that you have promised to provide and you have provided. In Jesus' name, amen.